Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure having you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleagues, Monica Chemlewski and Kyle Faget, to kick off today's conversation about the effects of COVID-19 on the conduction of clinical trials in the healthcare industry. Take it away, Monica and Kyle. Thank you very much, Judy. Hi, my name is Monica Chemlewski, and I am a partner in Foley Chicago office. I am the vice chair of the healthcare practice group and the co-chair of the life sciences industry team. I've spent the last 20 years uh, representing pharmaceutical and medical technology device companies and biopharmaceutical companies along with hospitals and health systems in all areas related to clinical research and uh, FDA. And with this, we're we're really excited to have uh, everybody join us today and to discuss what is a very timely and interesting topic, and that being the conduct of clinical trials in the world we know today as the world impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Unfortunately, it really seems that no one and no industry has been spared from its impact. And this includes the pharmaceutical and medical device companies and the biopharma companies that have been conducting clinical research. Now, prior to COVID-19, there have been many discussions and some thought about how it may be possible to conduct clinical trials in a virtual setting, using technology and innovative measures. And while that technology has arguably been available and present, it really had not been embraced. Uh, It really had not been utilized in a widespread manner. Now, that has all changed. COVID has forced this issue to the forefront. And indeed, the FDA even is focusing on this as well. In March, the FDA urged industries and CROs to take a virtual approach to the conduct of clinical trials in reaction to COVID. And really, they wanted a virtual clinical trial platform to try and attempt to slow the spread of COVID. But but what does this mean? And how is it possible to take a virtual approach to the conduct of clinical trials? That's what we're going to look at today. In this podcast, we're going to explore, you know, what are the major impacts that we've been seeing on the conduct of clinical trials in relation to the COVID pandemic? You know, what are certain regulatory implications associated with that? And where do we see this going? What is going to be the potential future impact of COVID on clinical trials in relation to the use of technology? Trying to look into the crystal ball. And with that, I, I'm very pleased to have both Kyle Faget and Lori Halloran on to discuss this with us. Kyle Faget is a of counsel uh, at Foley in our Boston office. She is a dedicated member of both the healthcare practice group and our life sciences group and has devoted the majority of her practice to representing industry, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, 
biopharma companies in all areas related to R&D and clinical trials. And she's also a core member of Foley's telemedicine team. Lori Halloran is also one of our special guests and Lori founded the Halloran Consulting Group in 1998. Originally, it was operating out of her unfinished bathroom. Lori's time as a pediatric ICU nurse has inspired her to start a company that helps move th new therapies through the FDA processes to get them into the hands of patients that are desperately in need. By providing a strategic development team, innovative startup companies could have access to world-class expertise at a fraction of the cost. Since its humble beginnings, Halloran has grown into a successful consultancy of like-minded experts who are dedicated to improving human health by making life sciences companies better at what they do. I am pleased to have both Lori and Kyle on this podcast to discuss virtual clinical trials with us. So Kyle, I'm gonna, with that, please turn it over to you so let's you can uh, kick off this conversation here. Awesome, thank you so much, Monica, I appreciate it. Uh, I think first and foremost, it makes sense for us to start with what we're seeing right now. So maybe starting with asking Lori, um, since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, what are the major impacts you've seen to clinical trials? Thank you. It's been drastic and catastrophic. There were some data that came out last week on one of the major central IRBs was reporting that only 14% of the research sites are right now open to enrollment. There have been a staggering 100 plus non-COVID trials that were put on hold last month and 60 new US clinical trials for COVID. So what we're seeing across the board is a huge drop in new patients. And if there have been studies that are existing, about 25% of those patients have dropped or their visits have been interrupted. What this turns into is that there are delays in enrollment, missed study visits. Basically, the patients just can't get to the research sites or the research sites don't want them there. What, some of the things that we are also seeing is any new studies, um, they're just being more or less put on hold. There can be a lot of activities that can be done to get them to the point where they're just about to, ready to start enrolling, but the research sites don't have staff. If they're nursing staff in some situations, they've either been laid off or they've been deployed to the front lines in treatment of COVID. So we can get them right up to the brink of being able to enroll the patients, but no one wants to do any moving, which no one, I couldn't blame them, to actually go and visit. That cascades into protocol adherence issues um, or potential protocol adherence issues if they cannot comply with the procedures and schedules of the visits. Many of these procedures are designed to collect important data on both the safety and efficacy of the drug. They may not be able to get the drug, um, and then there can't be activities post those visits to clean up the data and get ready for submission. In another way, we're also seeing the, the actual material, the clinical trial material themselves, the drug, can't get to the sites. There's limited import and exports. There's limited distribution of, of the other types of equipment that are typically used and travel bans. So it's pretty much across the board that we're seeing these types of delays. So in advance of COVID-19, um, you know, we saw a real reluctance on the part of industry to adopt what 
maybe better known as telemedicine or virtual clinical trials, for example, whereby visits with an investigator or um, a research nurse, for example, were conducted via something like Zoom or something like that to have these visits um, done virtually. Have you seen any shift? Like, Are there protocols being rewritten to incorporate the use of technology that um, we're seeing all across the board in, in terms of medicine? Or is this just we're hitting a standstill for clinical trials? No, there are people starting to break out and find workarounds. A lot of this goes to the level of risk that the company is willing to assume. And that, I would say, is probably the biggest thing that has shifted drastically. The industry as a whole is very risk averse, but given this absolute standstill, there have been creative ways to try to have telemedicine visits or remote laboratory assessments where the patient goes to the lab, it's not affiliated with an academic medical center, and they have their bloods drawn, or they have a visiting nurse come and come in and, and do some assessments. A lot of what goes into a clinical trial is not actually necessary to be face-to-face. Face -face. Here's a really simple example that when you take it and you unpack it a little bit, illustrates the challenge. Um, there's something called a six-minute walk test. And for years, we have been having patients drive or fly hundreds to you know, thousands of miles so that someone who's a quote-unquote qualified to watch them walk for six minutes in, across a straight line, 20 meters, is doing that in order to define that the product is making the patient better. It's not an objective assessment, it's subjective. But we have put ourselves into the situation where, where we've mandated that without actually really knowing why. And people are starting to think more creatively about how could they do that and have it be videoed or watched remotely. There's a lot of creativity because of the necessity to do this. Most of what can be done can be done with some level of remoteness. What we're also seeing people do is define what is a critical safety or efficacy measure and trying to figure out what they can do without having face-to-face -face contact to get that done. Anything that isn't a critical or safety or efficacy measure actually really shouldn't be part of the protocol because protocols are over-engineered a lot to ask for data that no one actually knows what they're gonna do with. They just might wanna have it someday. So I think there's a very strong focus on what is absolutely necessary and they're whittling it down. Now, one of the things that is required in doing clinical trials is you have to have an ethics committee or an IRB take a look at what's been changed. But if you're making the decisions on changing things in a study with the patient's safety in mind, those are often things that can be reported after the fact. They don't actually have to have extensive reviews and approvals. And because COVID-19 travel is patient safety compromising, that, that kind of opens the door to a lot of um, creativity. Most of the time, people don't think creativity is good in a clinical trial, but in this case, I think it is. It's a completely fair point. Uh, so just uh, tackling this issue of creativity, because I think it's a really important one, and I absolutely agree that uh, 
researchers are going to have to think outside the box. Industry is going to have to think outside the box to tackle um, today's issues amidst COVID-19. And, you know, the good news about being forced to change is that some of the changes I think could be very long lasting. But, um, you know, having said that, though, what are some of the regulatory and compliance implications that um, go along with these forced changes? Well, ultimately, the challenge will be is the data set that has been defined as critical to demonstrate safety and effectiveness. Has that been met? Um, that's the biggest risk of all, because if you've cut out so many procedures and tests that you or, or the patients have skipped visits or not shown up, that could ultimately impact the ability uh, to determine whether or not the study met its endpoints. So that, that's the highest risk for the company. If the company is able to take a critical approach to looking at the, at the actual study design and determine things that can be pushed off or eliminated or done in, in a more creative way, the likelihood of the data integrity being maintained will get higher over the course. Well, one thing that, that is an increasingly important aspect of doing, conducting, monitoring, analyzing, and saving a study or reporting that study is the regulatory agencies, especially in the US and Europe, are increasingly looking closely at what the pharma company, the sponsor company has done to mitigate risk and to manage oversight. And oversight is the main role of the sponsor company, the, the pharma company. They have to oversee the research sites. They have to oversee the conduct of the trial. They have to oversee a, a variety of different vendors that they need to hire to, to perform the various thousands of activities. And when things are changing so quickly in this type of an environment, you start to if you're if you're not proactively defining the risks that you have in front of you and documenting what you did to mitigate or manage or decrease those risks you end up losing the plot so what we're seeing a lot of a heightened level of concern around is a real time approach to that documentation and what ends up happening at the end of a study or an end of a program where a, a drug is going to be approved is the regulators send in inspectors in many cases to take a look at what was done to verify that it was done according to the regulations. And the things that they look at are how all of the activities were defined, managed, and documented. So in this type of environment where there's so much happening at any given time, if you're not documenting the risks that you reprioritized and the ways you dealt with making decisions to, to put mitigations in place, you're going to lose it. So a lot of our clients and a lot of our colleagues are pulling out tools and sharing them with each other so that they're, they're basically creating storyboards and narrations as to what decisions they made, why they made them, and what the outcome was. And that's, a, that's a, actually a really good practice to do in a, in a non-pandemic um, situation. And often the thing that, that sponsors are dinged on in an inspection is that they didn't explain what they did and why they did it. So that, I see that as a positive. Well, that, that's interesting. And, and if I could jump in here, Kyle, one, one thing, Lori, that I'm wondering, you know, as we're talking about this and these 
you know, these new innovative, you know, ways to conduct the trials, to reach the patients, to gather the data, all while doing so in, in a compliant manner. What have you seen, you know, recently that, you know, these forced changes are bringing that are either enabling or inspiring industry to use technology in ways that we haven't seen before in relation to clinical trials. We've seen a lot of, just in the general healthcare world, patients now interacting with providers on virtual visits. And one would assume that there may be aspects of a protocol that would lend itself to something similar. But then as you were mentioning compliance and documentation, I wonder, well, how does a monitor monitor that to make sure everything's done correctly? But but what have you seen in terms of this technology? What What are your thoughts? Well, what I've seen and what's actually in use is a drastic, there's a drastic divide between that. There's something like 0.04 trials that actually have brought in technology and adopted it in a meaningful way in, in clinical research. And that's really astounding. There are basically what could be occurring, and it isn't yet because people are too busy just dealing with the now, but what could be occurring is a simultaneous evaluation of a subject for a trial, as well as just doing a health history. It could be that, that the physician is dictating the findings in the visit, and there's an automatic behind the scenes evaluation of whether or not that patient is eligible for, um, for a study that's going on. We're nowhere near that yet. What is happening is there are like you said, televisits happening, there's home health aides coming, there are, um, there are some sponsors are sending pinprick kits at, with a special surface that you put your drop of blood on instead of having it drawn at the research institution. Um, that's not technology, but it's a little bit more evolved than making the patients go to the laboratory that's down the hall from the physician. So it doesn't have to be super high tech to be effective. And a lot of that is, is fairly easily implementable given the circumstances. The things that aren't as easy to implement are remote. There are companies that basically bring every, all of the infrastructure and all of the expertise that you could have in place in a community-based physician's office, and they will run your trial for you or they will do most of it from a distance. That hasn't really been widely adopted, basically just because the time to get it up and running is, is not a matter of weeks. There has to be a little bit long, longer of a lead time. I see that a lot of those types of remote, supportive, or virtual opportunities will be tried out in this situation and then might likely be thought of as much more um, feasible for future. So for the moment, I think a lot of studies are just trying to get by, but I think what this is doing is it's making people realize that they were caught very flat-footed and that they should be thinking about what they can do differently going forward. Sure. And from, from a compliance standpoint, you, know, you mentioned uh, you know, the taking of an HMP at the same time, perhaps a, a patient is evaluated for maybe meeting inclusion-exclusion criteria in a clinical trial, getting consent. And there's a whole myriad of uh, different regulations on both, you know, the healthcare side and industry side that may, you know, implicate that. You know, using a lot of this technology, I know it's 
there's state by state regulation for obtaining consent from a patient when you're using you know, a telemedicine technology versus when you're in person doing an HMP. And there could be some carryover for those state-by-state -state regulations of these telemedicine technologies that may potentially apply in the, in the research setting. Do you see that as something that maybe is uh, deterring industry from, you know, really embracing this and, and jumping in, you know, both feet as to how they can utilize novel technologies? Or is it something that you think it's more they've just always done things one way and, and now this will be more of a forced shift? Mm -hmm. Well, there are quite a few large companies that are embracing technology and they've started to blaze a path. The challenge is that most companies don't have the extra people to do that technology blazing activities. A lot of pharma companies are fairly fairly thinly resourced, so they don't have a, a clinical innovation department. That being said, I think that to me, the biggest impediment that I've seen um, between the current practice and the idea of doing something more innovatively, which usually translates into using technology, is a disconnect between the folks who run the development organization and the executives. In a small company, the head of clinical development is going to, in some situations, report to a CEO or a chief medical officer. And there's a lack of interest in taking a chance with air quotes around it on doing something novel or different. And, and I think that's always gone from the top down. Um, if someone wanted to try a new technology, the question would be, is this our pivotal program? Why would we want to make any changes to that? Let's just go and do it the old way. So I've been very interested in exploring for quite a while what those department heads define as their technology adoption strategy and what kind of business case they can create to take that strategy to reality and how they define the value that they get from taking the technology and, and using it and actually bringing it in, getting it up to speed, having everyone on their program, working on it in a productive way, not just in a, oh, this is a brand new toy way. And really what it's always come down to is, well, let's not do it now. Let's wait till someone else does it. And this pandemic has changed that and I hope it's changed it for the future because everyone realizes now that, that maybe they should have tried some of those things and they wouldn't be so stuck um, because it's too hard to change on a dime in a matter of weeks. So I actually am very optimistically thinking that the mindset of everyone from now on will be different and will be, what can we possibly leverage technology to do more efficiently and more effectively? Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I, I really like what you had mentioned, you know, near the beginning of the conversation where this really is tied to patient safety. And the more you know, we can argue the use of technology is a, a benefit to patients and is more will help with patient safety, I think the more it'd be adopted. And even it seems like with the FDA looking at this, it may be that they, when they have time, look to maybe issue some guidance on this, which would help the industry embrace it even more. FDA has never been a huge impediment to this. I have never seen FDA say, don't try it, it's new. FDA has come out and put out risk 
based approaches. What they want is for the sponsor organization to manage and mitigate the risk. They don't want every I dotted and every T crossed and double checked and triple checked three times. They've never said that. It's just evolved into that practice. And I don't know why, it's, but it's gotten more and more complicated and less and less efficient in the 30 years that I've been doing it for no really good reason. It still doesn't impact the ultimate outcome if an investigator is going to commit fraud. It doesn't change that. If there's a, a, a little bit of sloppiness in the handwritten transfer between a medical record and a report form, most of that is picked up. Um, by data analysis. So, you know, there's, there's like 2% of serious issues that are picked up by the, the practice of doing site monitoring. And a lot of that isn't, it isn't about safety. It's about detail. So it doesn't add value, but it sure adds cost and time. At the end of the day, do you think that those, you know, the triple checking, making sure all I's dotted and T's crossed is really self-imposed by industry and FDA? More interested in the integrity of the data at the end. Absolutely. And the real challenge is if you're so focused on that minute detail, you don't actually see trends. You, you're too close to it. The trends are not seen during the monitoring phase. They're not seen until the analysis phase or until a, a data cut. So we're adding immense amounts of cost and time for really no value whatsoever, which makes me go back to the question that I ask heads of clinical development, what is the value that you want to get? What is the value proposition? Many people don't even know how to do that. Like, what are you going to save? And they can say what they might save in real dollars, but they can't save what's really meaningful to the executives, which is time to market or overall development costs. And that's where I see technology changing things. And do you see technology in your mind, in your opinion, do you think it's going to continue to evolve? Do you think there's already a sufficient you know, amount, breadth of technology there that's just waiting to be utilized? And where do you see this going in terms of the advantages or the disadvantages? So the, the challenge is there are 9 million, I'm exaggerating a bit, but there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different tools and enablers and technology-oriented things that are supposed to facilitate how you get things done. It's a little bit of a tsunami effect where you've got 15 different possible vendors for every single activity or step that you're going to do in a clinical trial. Where I see the disconnect is in one unified stream where data is generated based on one-touch entry or one-touch dictation, and then it is managed through the entire process until it is visualized as part of final data set. That's the opportunity, but I don't think we're there yet. There are a few companies that are on the leading edge of that, and that's what we're studying right now so that we can define how those disparate silos of vendors should be working together or creating some way of um, having the data move seamlessly from one place to another. That's where I see the value and the opportunity here in, in taking that to another place. Yeah, yeah. one would also think, and I'm just thinking out loud here, that you know, use of certain technology and, and expand that would allow for expansion 
by industry to reach even more potential subjects and to allow people you know, who might otherwise not been able to access or participate in a clinical trial to be able to participate as well. You mentioned people having to travel thousands of miles to do the walk the line test. If conducting you know, trials and using you know, certain technologies for part of it, I mean, I would think that would open up access too. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the challenge is that your standard community-based physician is really not, they're stuck in a really tight place because they have to get reimbursement and they get, you know, they get pushed down by the insurance companies. So they're, they're getting a percentage of what they would normally charge. And they're, you know, fighting with the insurance companies, trying to get the, the payments that they should be due. They don't have time to start a, a clinical research program. And what I usually tell, I've, I've told my own physician, you don't have the staff. You'd, ha- you'd need another whole set of redundant people to do that work. Um, so you have to really be willing and open to making an investment in starting up a research practice. I see it as that it shouldn't be one or the other. It shouldn't be the enormous investment in order to have all the people to do all the procedures and do all the paperwork that really shouldn't be done because it's not ultimately benefiting the outcome for the patients and it's not creating better and safer data. So if you had a mechanism by which you could have a community-based physician participate in a large trial with a very light touch, and that touch could be facilitated by technology, then you would open up a lot more opportunities to get to the patients where they are, where they live, and make it less burdensome for them to participate. And that makes perfect sense. What do you see, though, is, is the potential disadvantages? I mean, I, I know you said, you know, starting up, you know, some of these practices, it takes, you know, extra time is a longer process. But what other, what are the other potential disadvantages you see that might be, you know, hindering companies from embracing this? So, so there's a disadvantage if you have, if you're doing a large study and you have a hundred different physicians as their principal investigators, you have a hundred people to keep on track. If you are distri- you know, doing a broadly distributed decentralized model where any physician could be an investigator, you have a lot more people to keep track of. Um, so that's a big disadvantage. That's something that we're now seeing glimpses of with the COVID pandemic where the sites are being brought on remotely and they're having remote training done and they're having telemonitoring visits to check in, um, which doesn't, it, it increases the complexity, but it's on the sponsor side, not on the site side or on the patient side. So that's one thing that could be done if people want to go there. Um, I think if, they, if they're able to save the time and money that I believe some of the integrated systems could bring, they might be more willing to add a lot more sites because it would actually speed up enrollment. So that's one area which is, you know, it could be something that we embrace going forward. Companies that already have orphan diseases or ultra rare diseases already have to do that. So they may have research sites all over the world who each have one patient. And it would seem to me that the use of technology, particularly in the ultra rare space would be a really good thing. Like I, I can't imagine why anyone in that space wouldn't want to move to a model where utilizing technology is almost a must because all of a sudden you can reach via technology 
patients that, as Monica suggested, you otherwise couldn't get to clinic, or there's this huge barrier for travel or something else to get these um, subjects into the clinic. So I think that to me seems like one solve, and, but simultaneously, at least what I've seen over time in my own practice, and I'm curious what you've seen, Lori, is that um, sponsors don't want to deal with what was at least in advance of COVID-19, this sort of state-by-state -state patchwork of laws and regulations dictating how virtual visits can be done. And what's interesting to me, at least during the pandemic, is that a lot of these barriers to entry for telemedicine, which by extension, use in a clinical trial, are crumbling down and opening a pathway if these laws and regulations that were barriers to entry remain at bay after the pandemic, that this could be a real opportunity for sponsors to utilize telemedicine in a way that they maybe, not that they couldn't before, but that there was a lot of like background research and knowledge that might have been required to utilize technology in a compliant way. I couldn't agree more. And I hope that that is one positive impact that comes out of this. What we really need to think about is, does the patient know and do they care how their data is being used if they're getting a life-saving or life-altering treatment? There's a, a growing movement for a very large, ubiquitous department store to open up clinics within the store to bring in patients and do primary care. Very good idea, but the way they get the patients is they ask people as they walk through the door if they'd like to see a primary care doctor. If so, click here, and the patient gives away all their rights to their protected health information with that click and that doesn't even know. So I would say, why aren't we asking the patients what they want rather than making the states decide what's best for the patients? And that could be an outcome of this. Yeah, it'll be definitely interesting to see where this takes us. You know, as mentioned, COVID has has and is impacting you know the world, the economy on a global basis, and you know this type of industry is no different. And kind of wrapping this up and summarizing, Lori, what would you say the big takeaways are that you're seeing? That has yeah, you've been in this industry for a number of years. You know, you've assisted pharmaceutical companies, you know, biopharma companies in the conduct of clinical trials. What would you say is one of the largest takeaways, one of the largest impacts that you've seen this pandemic have on the world of research? I think it's actually bigger than the world of research. I think it's on the world of healthcare. And I think it's going to be, we're going to look back on this time as a pivotal point in time when we realized that we couldn't afford not to have people have access to healthcare. And it will cascade to research because if people are in the system, they're almost always benefiting from participating in a clinical trial. They just don't know it exists. There's data and there have been studies done that patients who are on a clinical trial feel really well cared for. It's seen as a positive thing when they have been part of a clinical trial. So I actually think that there's huge potential if we have systemic change as an outcome of this, and it seems as though that's becoming more and more obvious to everyone, that 
there's there has to be that outreach so that everyone has has an option and that's not a political comment that's a a, a human comment and i think that will transfer to how we do our work and i just hope that we are embracing technology so that we're not wasting time and money which could be saved in order to pass the savings along to the patients because I think that's another big thing that's going, it's gone quiet for now, but it will come back. The pharma industry really can't afford to be on a lower level of trust than used car salesmen. And we haven't gotten away with that. It's just been put off for now. So it's a really big chance to do right and do what's right for the patients and still allow the pharma companies to have some level of profitability that makes sense. Oh, very well said. And I think that's absolutely right. You know, at the at the end of the day, you know, what everybody really needs to remember is that the focus is and should be on the patients and the welfare of the patients, and that everything that you know, farm is doing, that we're doing, that FDA should be for the benefit of patients, including access to healthcare, access to these trials. I, Laura, I think that's very, very well said, and I agree completely with that. Well, and everyone who works in clinical research doesn't work in clinical research because they're quote unquote pharma. They, they are passionate about trying to make patients' lives better. And that's why they're as dedicated as they are. So I would see this as a, as a huge opportunity to give a resounding pat on the back to those dedicated workers. Yeah, absolutely. This has been, I think, very informative, very, I find it very interesting. It's, I'm very curious and will be very poised to see you know where this goes and how this continues to evolve to shape uh, the industry and the world uh, but with that any any last concluding thoughts Lori or Kyle stay positive yes yes positive safe healthy but well it, Thank you both for your time today. I, you know, Laura, your, your wealth of, of knowledge and, and behind the scenes expertise is just absolutely wonderful. And we hope everybody enjoyed this and found this to be very, you know, informative and interesting. And like I said, I hope everybody uh, stays healthy and safe in the wake of the COVID pandemic and afterwards. Thank you everybody for your time today. And Judy, I'm turning this back over to you. Thank you, Kyle and Monica, and thank you to Lori Halloran of Halloran Consulting Group for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. Thank you for joining us.